Last year, dreamers, I shared a Halloween tale on the Corpus Delecti podcast, and it was one that happened very close to where I live. As a matter of fact, it took place in the same city where Jasmine Fiore's body was found in that suitcase, the city of Buena Park. And I know there is at least one person in our Facebook group who lives there, and it is literally one city over from where I'm sitting right this second. It is a unique little town with a population of about 80,000 people, and it has the nickname the center of the Southland because it is technically a part of Orange County. It straddles the border of LA County and is considered a part of the greater Los Angeles metropolitan area. Buena Park boasts a bustling tourist industry with a number of points of interest, as it is home to several popular tourist destinations along its main thoroughfare, Beach Boulevard, known as its E-Zone District. There is Knott's Berry Farm, its adjacent water park, Knott's Hoke City, the Pirate Dinner Adventure Show, Medieval Times Dinner Show, Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, and the Japanese Village and Deer Park. Not to mention its close proximity to Disneyland, just a couple miles southeast down the 5 Freeway, which is a freeway that bisects Buena Park. The city also has its own local history park, with several historic buildings, including the Whitaker Jane's House, serving as the city's local history museum, the Bacon House, which is the oldest surviving structure in the area, and the Stage Stop Hotel, which is where the Orange County, California Welcome Center is located. Another little secret about Buena Park is the Nabisco factory that used to be located in the city, where the company produced honey-made graham crackers, Ritz crackers, vanilla wafers, just to name a few Nabisco products until it shut down in 2006 due to the aging facility. People who would drive by could smell the aroma of sweet cookies emanating from the factory. My dad included, who drove past it for many years as he commuted to his job just a few miles further in the city of Fullerton. I used to work in Buena Park for several years in my early 20s as a dog obedience instructor at PetSmart, also on Beach Boulevard. And when I was a kid, there was a teacher supply store there that, for some reason, I really loved going to and it has since closed. My family and I, we used to eat at this barbecue place off the five called Jerry's. I barely remember it, but I do recall seeing lots of truckers stopping there whenever we did go. There's also a shop called Calico's and it's completely dedicated to baking supplies. My mom and I used to go there when she was going through her cake decorating phase. The Buena Park Mall, a place that became pretty run down for a long time, but in recent years has been renovated and rejuvenated and is now known as downtown Buena Park. So, it's a city, though I'm not from there. It's been a big part of my life, and it's one that I really love and enjoy. By the way, our Facebook friend, Carolyn, she's the one who lives in Buena Park, and she remembered that I told this story on the Corpus Delecti podcast last year. And she reminded me that she has very close ties to some of the individuals involved in this case. I've asked her to email me some of the details from her perspective, but in case I don't get a response from her by recording time, maybe we can discuss it further on Facebook. 
And thanks again, Kara, for reaching out to me about this story again. Oh, and by the way, about half a day has passed since I last wrote that, and I did hear back from Kira, and she did email me her story, as well as the perspective of somebody else involved in this case. I will get to that in a little bit. So, if it isn't already obvious, you've probably guessed that today's short story takes place in the city of Buena Park. And as I'm writing the notes for this episode, I posed a question in the Facebook group. Are homeowners justified in using deadly force against a trespasser, stealing items from their front yard? After I tell you the story, I will share some of your answers. I can't share all of them, but I can thank all of you for participating in answering my question. It does feel like almost all of us are on the same page with this. So before we get to your answers on the Facebook question, let me tell you about what happened in the city of Buena Park. On October 19th, 1999, 17-year-old Brandon Ketstever, described as a fun-loving, popular John F. Kennedy High School athlete who played football, water polo, and ran track, who was also an occasional prankster, according to his family and friends. He was shot in the head while driving his car. He had two friends as passengers that were uninjured. Your first thoughts might likely be some kind of random shooting. Could he have been involved in a road rage incident and the occupants of the other car opened fire? Sounds like a common thing in California, right? Well, it actually is a common thing in California. According to a 2010 study on drive-by shootings, For the six-month period that covered July 2008 through December of 2008, that time period was examined in the United States, and there were 733 drive-by shooting incidents that were reported that claimed 154 lives and injured 631 people. And California led the nation in the number of drive-by shootings with 148 incidents, killing 40 injuring 129. Following California is Texas, with 60 drive-by shootings, killing 6 and injuring 52. Florida, with 48 drive-by shootings, killing 10 and injuring 43. Illinois, with 38 drive-by shootings, killing 18 and injuring 53. And Washington State, with 38 drive-by shootings, killing three, and injuring 21. 18% of those killed were under the age of 18. 46% of the incidents were either inside or outside a residence. 17% of the shootings involved shooting at another vehicle. 40% of them occurred between 7 p.m. and midnight. 33% of them occurred between midnight and 7 a.m. And the shootings peaked in August then declined as the weather became cooler. So you get the picture. The likelihood of this being a drive-by incident is high. But in Buena Park? Yeah, it's possible anywhere. No neighborhoods are immune to gun violence. But this wasn't a drive-by. Brandon was driving his car with his two friends when he was shot in the head by a homeowner. Buena Park resident... 47-year-old Pete T. 
Tavita, Salamona. Brandon was driving by Salamona's home. So you're probably wondering, why in the world has this man opened fire on a carload of teenagers? Well, as we delve into this story and the reasons why all of this happened in the first place, you're going to find yourself shaking your head at the sheer senselessness of this tragedy. Wondering how one man's anger and frustration escalated to bring about an act of homicidal rage over something that you're going to find to be so incredibly petty. Salamona, up until the evening of this incident, the evening when he stormed out of his home waving a loaded 357 Magnum revolver, was by all accounts the kindest of neighbors, a devoted family man, a loving grandfather. When his gun discharged that single bullet, Salamona would claim that it went off accidentally. And when I posed my question about deadly force yesterday, Lacey Rowe, the very sweet host of the Curious AF podcast, pointed out one of the golden rules of handling a gun. You don't take out a gun and point it at someone unless you intend to use it to kill them. It's just a matter of safety. So to Solomona's claim that it went off accidentally, it speaks to that point. Don't go waving your gun around unless you're prepared to kill someone. According to witnesses at the scene, Salamona froze in the middle of the street the moment the gun went off. He was dazed and he was stunned. And he just kept saying, it just went off. It just went off. Salamona's daughter raced to the car. A neighbor called 911 to report the shooting. Salamona called 911 to report himself. He told the operator that he just shot someone. He insisted that the shooting was an accident. The shooting of Brandon Ketzdever that night shocked this quiet Orange County neighborhood, nestled less than a mile away from Knott's Berry Farm. Neighbors described the scene that evening as chaotic. For years to come, they would struggle with how something like this could have happened and wondered if things would ever get back to normal. So what was it that happened that night that Solomona shot Brandon in the head? What led to all of this? And why? Well, as it turned out, Brandon and his two friends were driving around the neighborhood in their car that evening, specifically looking for Halloween decorations to steal. They were in their car, slowly cruising around, circling the neighborhood, and they claimed that they were trying to steal decorations from their friends' houses as a prank. Now, I don't know how much truth there is in that because to me, it sounds like a bit of minimizing. Like, it's not that bad if you're pranking your friends rather than stealing from random strangers' houses. And I don't know if Brandon and his friends knew the Salamona family. I'm gathering they didn't. Because the fact that Salamona opened fire on the boys, I tend to think that they had no idea who each other were. If Salamona's own kids were friends with them or something, wouldn't he have possibly known or anyone could have intervened and told him, hey, we know those guys, it's cool, it's harmless fun, whatever. None of that happened. 
Anyway, Salamona stated to detectives that he noticed one of his Halloween decorations was missing at 8.45 that evening. He saw Brandon and his friends drive away from his home. They circled back a few minutes later, and that's when Salamono grabbed his gun, exited his home, and confronted the teens as they pulled up along the street outside his house. According to one of the teens in the car, Solomona shouted, What the hell are you doing? Why did you steal my pumpkin? They described him as banging his hand that held the gun on the roof or the window of their car. They had just stolen a three and a half foot or just a little over one meter tall decoration from Salomona's yard. According to another witness account, the teens in the car taunted Salomona, saying something along the lines of, what are you going to do about it? It wasn't much longer after this confrontation began that Salomona's weapon discharged, one shot, and Brandon had taken a bullet to his head. The two other teens in the car fled from the vehicle, screaming, you've killed him, what have you done? And they both ran and left the scene. Salomona's daughter approached the vehicle and attempted to help the wounded 17-year-old, urging him to stay alive. According to witness accounts, she was imploring him to stay with it, to hold on. Paramedics arrived at the scene shortly after the shooting. They rushed Brandon to UCI Medical Center, which is several miles to the southeast in the city of Orange. Doctors did what they could to save Brandon, but he was mortally wounded. He would succumb to the gunshot wound to his head at 3.12 a.m. the following morning. I want to stop here for a moment and talk about this whole scenario with these teenagers driving around being mischievous. I have to tell you, I'll be the first to admit that rowdy teenagers annoy me. I encounter little groups of them all the time. I live near a high school. They aggravate my dogs when I'm walking them, especially when school has just let out. Even worse if they're on skateboards or they're loud or shouty. I just turn up my podcast a couple of notches and try to ignore them and carry on. It annoys me if they litter. It annoys me if they're loitering around my car. I hate it when I see graffiti at the nearby park where we walk. The other day, I saw some maintenance guys digging a small trench to fill in a spot at the park with a patch of cement because their vehicle drives over that all the time, causing the grass to die there. And what do you know? The next day, someone has carved their name into the cement before it had a chance to dry. At the same park, a day or so later, the maintenance guys repainted some of the speed bumps and, of course, some kid walked through it, leaving yellow footprints tracked across the parking lot. The same day, I watched the same maintenance crew painting the floor of a storage shed that they erected at the park. They sealed it off with caution tape and, as I walked by with my dogs, I saw two kids go under the caution tape and stomp their footprints into the still wet paint. I was trying to get closer so I could say something, but they ended up running off. And the icing on the cake, dreamers? I decorated the front porch for Halloween. Despite all of the annoying kids in the neighborhood, I'm still going to give out candy to them. Because 
It isn't all of them that act like this, right? So I decorated. And I was pretty pleased with it all. And when I was done, I hammered a decorative sign into the grass near the walkway. And I can't even remember what it said because I literally just bought it that day. It was something that was inviting for trick-or-treaters, right? And the next morning, it was gone. One of those little jerks stole my Halloween sign. And I was so annoyed. Not homicidal levels of annoyed, but annoyed nonetheless. And here I am, like two weeks later, I'm still bitter about my sign. It just irks me that I'm going to be giving out candy to the likely culprit on Halloween. And that little prick is going to take my candy knowing damn well that he or she took my sign too. I will eventually let it go, maybe. But I'm not going to stop giving away candy. And I'm not going to be that nasty lady in the neighborhood. And I'm certainly not going to end up the subject of a podcast over it either. But... If you're out there listening, and you know me as the lady who's always walking her three barky dogs in the neighborhood, that's my sign that you stole. Anyway, back in episode 12, I talked about annoying pranks that teenagers do. The story of Sharice Iverson, killed by Jeremy Strohmeyer. How he and his friends would drive around with a BB gun and shoot homeless men in the buttocks. I pointed out, then how these spoiled, overindulged, undersupervised kids behave sometimes. And it just crosses the line of being funny into just being plain cruel. Shooting a BB gun at someone is pretty serious, if you ask me, yet somehow these kids found it to be fun. And I find it really obnoxious and disrespectful to undo or ruin the hard work that people do like scrawling your name into cement that isn't set, or messing with wet painted surfaces, or littering in the parks, or spray painting graffiti on walls. Somebody has to fix the things that you mess up. Somebody has to sandblast that graffiti. Somebody has to pick up your garbage. And the day that I saw that man digging the ditch to pour cement, it was like 88 degrees outside or 31 degrees Celsius. Yes, in October, it's very warm still. And to see it defaced the next day is just sad. And these kids, they don't get it. So I understand the frustration. You're just fed up and you've had it. So you just want to take care of it once and for all. And it seems like Solomana reached that point. Now, I don't know how often his home was targeted for pranks or if this was an isolated incident that incited him to violence. But he just lost it over this act of thievery. And now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, it kind of reminds me of a certain homeowner in Little Falls, Minnesota, who got fed up with some kids breaking into his home and he decided to quote-unquote clean up the mess himself. He's a bit more of an extreme case. And if you aren't familiar with the case, maybe I'll talk about it at the end of this episode. It's actually on one of the earliest episodes of Sword and Scale that I ever listened to. 
And I do believe the Eye for an Eye podcast has done an episode on him as well. And it's another sad and senseless story. And I'll talk about it after this because, hey, why not? So back to Solomona. He was arrested and booked into the Orange County Jail on suspicion of murder. He would go on to stand trial a total of three times. He was convicted of murder in his first trial, but a judge would later throw out the decision, citing that the instructions that were given to the jury were flawed. A second trial ended in a hung jury, and in his third trial, the jurors deliberated for four days before reaching a verdict in May of 2002, more than two and a half years after Brandon's death. Solomona was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. In August of the same year, he was sentenced to six years in prison, which was much less than the maximum 11-year sentence that the then 50-year-old was facing. Finding the proper punishment for Solomona consumed the lives of everyone involved, not to mention three juries and three trials. But all sides stated that they were glad that the legal drama was over with. During the hearing, Solomona's wife turned to Brandon's family and apologized. Brandon's parents had urged the court to impose the maximum sentence, having poster-sized pictures of their son placed in the courtroom, one of him swinging a baseball bat, one in swimming goggles, one in a football uniform, and one in a tuxedo at the prom. His parents stated at the sentencing hearing, quote, Brandon never had a mean bone in his body. The one time he did something that he shouldn't have, he was murdered for it. Our son paid with his life. Our friends and families will pay for the rest of our lives. Orange County Superior Court Judge Richard Tuhi said that he was trying to strike a balance in the sentencing, stating, quote, I am not here to give anyone a break or send a message. The conduct of Mr. Salomona has left two families in ruins. He acted in disregard for life. Deputy District Attorney Carolyn Carlisle Rains stated that she hopes this case sends a message stating, quote, The only thing that can give meaning to this death is the next time a person gets angry at another person, disrespects them, cuts them off on the freeway. They have to remember that it's wrong to react in a way that places someone's life in danger. Salomona's attorney feels like the sentencing was too harsh, stating, quote, We felt like this was a probation case. It's the most this man deserved. It was an accident, so it bothers me. He used the gun to get attention, not in a threatening manner. Salomona was let out of the courtroom and immediately remanded into custody. His family told him that they loved him. Brandon's family left the courtroom, stating that they were glad that this was all over. So, about the email that I got from listener Kira, this is her personal connection to the case, and I'm so thankful that she was willing to share it with us. In October of 1999, Kira was just out of high school. Her best friend called her and told her that her brother and his friend 
were involved in and witnessed to the murder of their friend Brandon. Her immediate thought was, of course, disbelief. There is no way that this could be happening. Kara had just graduated with Brandon's sister four months earlier that past June. It was a complete shock that a crime like this could be happening so close to home, to people that she knew so well. So what exactly happened that night? According to Kara, there were several versions of the story, which is typical when you have several eyewitnesses to an event as shocking as this. The story that I told you is what I read in news articles online. But this is what she told me that she was told at the time that it happened. So you know those large plastic garbage bags that look like big jack-o'-lanterns that you can stuff with leaves or whatever to set out on the front lawn to serve as Halloween decorations? Well, apparently, the three friends were out being pranksters, being teenagers, with apparently nothing better to do on a Tuesday night, and they happened upon this house that had those stuffed jack-o'-lantern bags sitting on their yard. They thought it would be fun or funny or whatever to steal it. Kara has read several articles about this story, and at the time, now that this was 19 years ago, she didn't know if they had actually taken the decoration and drove off with it, and she still isn't sure to this day. According to the articles that I read, the homeowner noticed that the decorations were missing, so he was looking out for someone suspicious looking. But Kara has speculated that if they had taken it, they were perhaps coming back to try and return it, thinking better of their prank after some contemplation. Maybe the bag was stuffed with garbage, or maybe it smelled bad, I have no idea. But for some reason, the three of them came back, like I described earlier in the story. Kara's friend's brother and their friend were in the car when the homeowner, Salomona, came out with his gun. According to him, Salomona pointed the gun straight at Brandon's head, and without giving any kind of warning, the gun discharged. That is his version of what happened that night. Of course, he was scared and he was covered in blood. He got out of the car and ran home, which was on the other side of the housing track that they were in. There was a vigil held for Brandon, which Kara attended. She saw her friend's brother. He said her name and hugged Kara and cried on her shoulder. It was the only time he'd ever given her a hug, and it was a moment that she hasn't forgotten. She hugged him closely, and together they cried. It was a thing that these kids should not have ever been made to go through. Kara was still a teenager herself at the time. She felt a deep amount of sadness for Brandon's family and for his friends and for the loss of what was and what could have been the life of Brandon Ketstever. Like everyone else has said, Kira knew him to be a nice, funny young man, handsome and full of life. He played football at their high school. He was a gifted athlete who had aspirations of someday becoming a police officer. He would have graduated with the class of 2000 the following June. Brandon's sister on occasion posted about her brother on Facebook as social media began to take hold in the years following his death. But sadly, like a lot of cases like this, hateful messages were left on her posts about him. 
no doubt by trolls with nothing better to do than continue to want to cause pain for the families of victims. And the pain of something like this never goes away. But getting trolled certainly doesn't do anyone any good. This is a story that is close to Kara, and to this day it stayed with her. And to you, Kara, I know that this is the second year in a row that you and I have talked about this case. Last year when I told it, it was only like a five-minute spot on another podcast, and I was still really new at this, and I wanted the chance to tell it again for our listeners. It was a senseless death, and it gets debated. Salomona has his defenders. He fought this case hard, and it took three trials to finally convict him. So obviously, not everyone thought he was in the wrong in what he did. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But as I was getting this put together, Kara actually got in touch with her friend, whose brother was in the car with Brandon the night that he was shot. Neither one of them wishes to be identified, but she shared what happened with her family the night all of this happened. So just to be clear, we are hearing from the sister of one of the passengers in the car with Brandon that night. The details of that evening are kind of fuzzy, because you see, her family does not speak of the incident. At all. Her brother refuses to talk about what happened to Brandon to this day. Their mother did not allow any Halloween celebrations or decorations for several years after the shooting. As for that night, this is what she could recall. She was sitting in her living room when all of a sudden her brother burst through the door and ran straight up the stairs to his room. Her stepdad was also downstairs in the living room as well and saw him run into the house and up the stairs. They both kind of looked at each other, kind of confused, like, what just happened here? Her stepdad yelled, asking him if everything was okay, but he did not answer. So stepdad went upstairs. And from there, things get very difficult to remember because it's all a blur. She thinks the police were called right away. And from what she can remember of what her brother told her, he said that he and his friends dared each other to steal the guy's Halloween decorations. She assumes that the guy saw them and came out with a gun. They ran back to the car and the guy had his gun at Brandon's head and shot him. Her brother and his friend got out of the car and ran for their lives. Their house was just a few streets over, so he ran home, and this is when she saw him running into the house and up the stairs. She does not know where his friend ran or how he made his way home. She thinks this experience really messed her brother up, as he refuses to bring it up or talk about it after all these years. And as far as she knows, he did not receive any type of counseling or professional help for this either. Today he is married and has two kids of his own, and they seem to do the normal Halloween things. They decorate their house, they pass out candy, they will go to Not Scary Farm, and they don't avoid Halloween parties. So to her, it's not like he shut out Halloween completely, but she isn't sure that if he just celebrates Halloween for the sake of his wife and kids, or if time has just allowed him to be able to move on and participate in the festivities of the holiday in spite of the tragedy that occurred that night. 
It is her understanding that the homeowner, the shooter, it was reported on the news that someone had either broken into his home or stolen his car, something like that, not too long before the night he shot Brandon. So he says that he was very on edge and ready to exact revenge or at least defend his property should the thieves come back. He would claim that he thought Brandon and his friends were the same people who had previously robbed him. He thought his gun safety was on and he insisted that he wasn't planning on pulling the trigger. But we all know how the story ends. The wake at the JFK High School and the funeral were also a blur to her as well. She just remembers her brother being very emotional, even hugging her friend Kara, which Kara told us about. He isn't much of a hugger, so she knew that it must have really had a deep impact on him for him to reach out in such a way. After the funeral, she thinks her brother just really tried hard to hide the whole ordeal away, just to keep it tucked deep down inside. His way of coping, she guesses. She visits Brandon's grave whenever she goes to Forest Lawn to visit other family and friends. And I'm assuming it's the Forest Lawn in Cyprus, the city next door to Buena Park. My dad is buried there as well, and I just visited a couple days ago myself. The first time she went, she texted her brother a picture of the grave and told him that she was visiting Brandon, but he never replied. She kind of felt bad for bringing it up, but thought to text him to see if he would respond. After that, she decided to just not speak to him about her visit to Brandon's grave in the future. So... I asked all of you on Facebook, and many of you answered, and most of us are on the same page about this. Is a shooting like this justified? Last year, I didn't have the audience to ask in order to elicit a meaningful response. To me, there seems to be no question that deadly force isn't justified in a situation like this. Like I said earlier, I understand Solomona's frustrations, I listed a bunch of my own with the kids that mess around in my neighborhood. But I'm not going to haul off and shoot any of them. Solomona went off the deep end that night. And I've tried to put myself in his place. What if I saw three young people in a car circling the neighborhood? Yeah, it would kind of make me nervous. I said it last year. It wouldn't matter if they were trying to steal lawn flamingos or if they were casing houses. I'd be nervous. I am not a gun owner, so shooting people is not an option. But I'd probably watch them for a few minutes and peek out my window. I might try to get a description of the car, and if something were to happen, I'd be able to have some information to provide to police. And even if I had a gun... I certainly wouldn't run up to the vehicle and open fire on the occupants. That's just insane to me. As for my question on Facebook, I asked about a more vague scenario, so it was difficult to answer definitively. There are so many variables when one is deciding whether or not to use deadly force when you notice a trespasser or anything suspicious going on around your home. There were so many of you who answered... And many of the answers echoed the same sentiment. 
So I'm going to take the time to thank everyone who answered and pull a few of the answers to share with you here. I'd like to thank the following people for graciously taking the time to comment on my question. Jason A., Leslie A., Elizabeth C., Hallie K., Karen R., Carol L., Virginia M., Kimberly P., Samantha L., Lacey R., Stephen H., Randy M., Sinead H., Laura M., Marilyn L., Megan S., Summer P., Kim H., Mishiro M., Kelly P., Mike M., a.k.a. Morph, Lindsay C., Christina S., Sunshine K., Chris T., Corey C., Tori G., Zach V., Christine E., Shannon M., Rebecca B., Betty S., Cynthia D., Jamie B., Shelly M., Rebecca S., Kara C., Andrea M., Stephanie L., Brandon K., Sue B., Brooke L., Jennifer S., Bonnie Lee, Crystal M., Emily H., and Suzanne B. And I'll share a couple of answers. Because of time, I can't share them all. But mostly everyone agrees that deadly force in these types of situations where you think someone is going to come into your yard and steal something is not justified. The homeowner in our story admitted that he noticed one of his lawn decorations was missing. He saw who he suspected of taking it drive by, and he went out there with his gun. Whether intentional or not, it's like we said, don't point a gun if you don't intend to use it. Intent to kill is presumed then, and we know how the story ends. He shot Brandon in the head and killed him. And I looked it up just out of curiosity. A set of three pumpkin lawn bags at Party City costs $1.99. And that's today, 19 years later. So yeah, this homeowner lost it over a decoration on his lawn that likely cost less than a dollar. Leslie A. said that if you own a gun, you should know how to use it. And if it's not life or death, then you can shoot them in the leg if you feel it's necessary. If your life is at risk, then you need to shoot to kill. Obviously, our story today is not life and death. I wouldn't even say it's a battle to even bring a gun to. Helly Kay said that using deadly force against thievery isn't justified, but using deadly force to defend your own life or the life of a loved one is. Karen R. agreed as well. It's legally and morally wrong, Property crime does not justify deadly force. Carol L. made a good point, and she's been a member of our United States Armed Forces. So thank you for your service, Carol. She said that shooting someone in a particular body part is not easy, but going for center mass is. And I will even go so far to say that when my husband first fired his weapon when he was in the Army, center mass isn't always a piece of cake either. That being said, it is only justified if your life is in danger. Stealing from the front yard does not justify the use of deadly force. Samantha L. did say that if someone's on her property, she has the right to protect it, but she wouldn't automatically go for her gun. 
but if she's confronted with force, she will do what she has to do. And she brought up the idea of kids messing around in her yard, which is what our story is about. Kids messing around. Stephen H. brought up a different point. He said, stealing my lawn ornaments? No. But what if you're stealing a farmer's tractor that he needs to work on his fields? Or you're stealing a car out of someone's driveway or garage and that's their only way to get around and they're living paycheck to paycheck? It's hard for him to say. And I would guess it would depend on the laws in your particular state when it comes to what you can and can't do to protect your property against a perceived threat. And some of you brought this up. Chris T. said that in Pennsylvania, if someone steals something valued over $2,000 from your yard and is fleeing, the law permits you to shoot them dead even while they flee. Christy Elizabeth said that she read an article a few years ago about a guy who pulled into a driveway to turn around and the homeowner shot him. So she says no, more incidents like this would start happening. Rebecca B. said no, things get stolen from yards all the time. And Crystal M. agreed that while she lived in Chicago, if you left something outside, you might as well be giving it away. Brandon Keith said that in some states, you could get shot for trespassing on someone's land. States have the stand your ground laws, and I will talk more about that in a little bit. He said that there was a case in Texas where a family was traveling in a van and stopped on the side of the road near a house and was shot dead by the property owner. The owner used the stand your ground offense and it would have worked except the property owner did not own the road that the van was stopped on and was subsequently charged with murder. If the van would have stopped a couple feet over onto the property, there would have been no murder charges. And finally, I am just going to put this out there in the universe for all of you. If you ever find yourself in the state of Washington, do not. I repeat, do not haphazardly walk onto Mar Woods' property. You will become a victim of some sort of unbridled act of violence. So, consider yourselves warned. Our hearts go out to Brandon's family and his friends for this completely senseless and tragic loss of life over something so petty. Yes, maybe these kids should have stayed off property that they shouldn't have been on. They shouldn't have been going around stealing Halloween decorations, but still, it's hardly worth killing over. I just hope kids take stories like these as a lesson. You aren't impervious. You are not immortal. You can't trust that everyone is going to think that your antics are funny. These things seem like harmless pranks, but you just never know who you are going to cross paths with or who had a particularly bad day or who is just fed up with this type of nonsense. And that brings this Halloween part of the story to a close. But this case reminded me of a 2012 Thanksgiving Day shooting that took place in Little Falls, Minnesota. Shout out to all the people in Minnesota with your cute accents. I don't know much about Little Falls, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the city first. Named after the falls located along the Mississippi River that passes through the town, it is the county seat of Morrison County and is one of the oldest cities in Minnesota, established in 1848. 
Little Falls also happens to be the childhood home of Charles Lindbergh, whose father was a prominent Minnesota attorney and U.S. congressperson. The population has seen some growth in the last 20 years and currently stands at just under 8,700 people. Haley Elaine Kiefer was 18 years old, born October 17, 1994, a native of Little Falls and was a senior in high school. She was the daughter of Jay and Jenny Kiefer. From the time she was in kindergarten, one of her favorite sports was wrestling, and she was a stats keeper for the wrestling team. She enjoyed gymnastics, diving, softball, and cross country. She was described as a very competitive person in any sport she participated in, never wanting to give up, even when she sustained injuries. She loved to go hunting, fishing, camping, and spending quality time with her friends and family. She also worked part-time at a variety of places in Little Falls, including Falls Cinema, KFC, Pizza Ranch, and Myers. Nicholas Alexander Brady was 17 years old, born March 21, 1995, also a native of Little Falls, and was a junior in high school. He was a son of Jason and Kimberly Brady. He enjoyed wrestling, taekwondo, strength and fitness training, hunting, fishing, camping, four-wheeling, and working on his cars and four-wheelers. He had a wonderful sense of humor, with a smile that brightened any room. He, too, was very family-oriented and enjoyed spending his free time with them as well. And the reason I'm speaking about cousins Haley and Nicholas in the past tense is because they're dead. On November 22, 2012, Thanksgiving Day, they were shot to death. Nicholas first, then Haley, after they broke into the home of Byron David Smith and descended down his basement stairs, one right after another, they were each shot by Smith, who was in the basement waiting for them with his weapons at the ready. He told police that he was afraid that these intruders might be armed because he had some guns stolen from his home recently. Smith had been the victim of numerous break-ins at his house. He filed reports, he spoke to his trusted neighbor about it, and he assumed it was the same individuals or group of individuals who were repeatedly burglarizing his home. Just like the subject of our Halloween story, Solomona had stated, that he too had recently been robbed or burglarized, and he assumed that the car driving by his home was likely the same individuals. But for Smith, once his guns were stolen, he assumed now that the stakes had been raised. The people breaking into his home were now armed. And within weeks of Thanksgiving Day, Smith began carrying a weapon on his person at all times while he was home. He lived alone. He was kind of a hermit. He was 64 years old at the time. Maybe he appeared to be an easy target, especially if those who were making a habit of breaking into his house noticed if his truck was gone. That meant he must not be home, and they just let themselves in. As time passed, it seemed as though Smith was becoming increasingly fearful for his own personal safety. Was he becoming unhinged? Well, if you're familiar with this story or you have listened to a number of podcasts that have covered it, I think I mentioned Sword and Scale and Eye for an Eye. True Crime Brewery has also covered it as well. Then you know Smith recorded this entire incident on Thanksgiving Day. From the time he killed Nicholas and Haley, for several hours afterwards, 
he rehearsed what he was going to say to his neighbor, to his attorney. He was preparing for when the time came for him to explain his actions. But this recording would end up doing him more harm than good, and we will go over that in a few minutes. Smith was a man fed up with these kids breaking into his home, and he decided to stand his ground this time. On his audio tape, you can clearly hear a window being broken upstairs. That was Nicholas. He shattered a bedroom window to gain entry into the home. You can then hear his footsteps coming down the basement stairs. And then you can hear Smith open fire on the person coming down. You can hear Nicholas moan a little bit. Smith fires at him again, and then it's quiet. Several minutes later, you can hear the whisper of a female voice calling Nicholas's name. She's wondering what's taking him so long. So it's presumed that she didn't hear the gunshot from where she was waiting for her cousin. Then she makes her way down the stairs, only to be met with the same fate as Nicholas. She is shot. She apparently stumbles down, and she can be heard screaming and saying, Oh my God. Then Smith's gun jams. He contemptuously says, Oh, sorry about that, and then reaches for another gun that he has nearby and finishes her off. And then again, it's quiet. Seems cut and dry, right? Teens break into a home. Homeowner shoots said teens to death, as he has the right to defend his home, correct? Several states have laws that allow homeowners to use deadly force when there is a perceived threat. You may have heard of them, and they vary from state to state. They are typically some variation of the standard ground laws or the castle doctrine laws. There is a small difference between the two. Castle doctrine goes back to the 1600s in England, the castle, of course, being a woman or a man's home. It gives people the right to protect their homes using deadly force without the obligation to retreat. British citizens hundreds of years ago felt like they needed to protect themselves from any intrusion from the government, by the king, or from any criminal elements. They developed castle doctrine so that everyone could have the right to protect themselves and their family without the fear of criminal prosecution. Castle doctrine has been on the American law books for centuries now as well, and it always has protected citizens who needed to defend their homes. In the 1980s, several states passed what became known as Make My Day laws, which, if you know the catchphrase, is from the 1983 film Sudden Impact, spoken by Clint Eastwood, while he's holding a gun pointed at a robber. The act just gave the laws official codes in these states as they passed them, making them official because the Castle Doctrine was kind of an understood law. You can use deadly force if someone tries to break into your home and is intending to commit a crime or is posing a threat to you and your family's safety. Even if you have the ability to flee your home to safety, you are not required to do so before you use deadly force. Now, if you're outside your home, you may have the duty to retreat, but that same duty does not apply when you are inside your home. Stand your ground laws expand on the castle doctrine in that it includes the principle when you are in public. Standing your ground means that you do not have the obligation to retreat from public places where anyone is legally allowed to be. The first state to pass the stand your ground law was Florida. And many of you may remember the high-profile case of the shooting death of Trayvon Martin by self-proclaimed neighborhood watch person George Zimmerman, 
who successfully defended his actions, but he didn't use the Stand Your Ground law. He was claiming self-defense. But it brought about a national conversation regarding the law. He couldn't use the Stand Your Ground law because it would have required Zimmerman to be in mortal danger with matching forces being used against him. And Trayvon only had a drink and some candy in his hand while Zimmerman was carrying a gun. Since it was passed in Florida in 2005, more than half the states have passed similar laws that allow a person to use deadly force in a life-threatening situation. All Stand Your Ground laws stipulate that a person must reasonably believe themselves or another person to be in mortal danger before matching force with force. Self-defense has always been a justifiable defense for homicide, but Stand Your Ground codified it and stipulates even further that a person has no duty to retreat. Stand Your Ground laws seek to provide immunity to victims of violent assaults, no matter where the assault takes place. So back to Smith. He has his defenders, people who feel as though he was within his rights to use deadly force against the perceived threat of these two breaking into his home with intentions of committing a crime. But there is very one important point where Smith crossed the line from justifiable homicide based on the Castle Doctrine principle into murder. And it was once he kept firing at the two teens. Those kill shots he talked about in his audio recording and not wanting them to suffer so he gave them each a finishing shot, that was absolutely the wrong thing to do. The debate about this case lies in the fact that Smith had been burglarized so many times previously, he basically predicted that they would be coming back on that very day. He knew they were coming, but he also did something to make sure that they would feel comfortable entering his home. He parked his truck someplace out of sight, so it would appear that he wasn't there. He grabbed some snacks and drinks, and he took a book to read, and he settled in his comfy chair set up in his basement. He also had two loaded guns with him, and some tarps to keep any potential bloody mess to a minimum. He turned on his recording device, and he sat and waited. Then Nicholas and Haley took the bait. They broke in. He shot them. But he didn't just protect his castle. He murdered them. And he very coldly and callously described as not seeing them as human. To him, in his words, they were worse than vomit, worse than diarrhea. That is how this man viewed these two teenagers. Yes, they were burglarizing his home. But how in the world did his mind get so twisted that he viewed their lives as utter garbage? It's abhorrent how he dispatched them without a moment of hesitation. And I still can hardly believe the things that are said on that audio recording. So let's talk a little bit about the killings and what led up to that day. A little less than a month before Thanksgiving, on October 27, 2012, Smith's home was burglarized and a number of valuable items were taken, including a shotgun and a rifle. He reported this to police. It was investigated, but no suspects were apprehended. Subsequent to this event, Smith described himself as having trouble sleeping, and he was very upset and unhappy about these break-ins, this most recent one in particular because guns were taken. He told his neighbor, Bill, that he suspected his other neighbor, Ashley, and her family of making a habit of surveilling his home 
to see when he would come and go. Worried that the burglar would return, knowing that they could possibly be in possession of the gun stolen from him, Smith began carrying a gun around the house with him at all times. At around 10.30 on the morning of Thanksgiving, November 22, 2012, Smith and his neighbor Bill were standing outside of Bill's house chatting when they both saw Ashley drive by. He believed it was her who was robbing him because clothing was stolen as well and he theorized that only girls would be interested in clothing. About an hour after Smith saw Ashley drive by, he moved his vehicle and parked it several blocks away outside of the home where two state troopers resided. He told investigators that he moved his vehicle because he wanted to clean his garage and protect it from being vandalized. After he parked his vehicle, he walked back home, arriving around 11.45 a.m. He walked through his backyard instead of entering into the main entryway of his house from the street. About 15 minutes later, Smith went into his basement and activated his digital audio recorder. He sat down in his chair, which faced the basement stairwell. He had a book, a bottle of water, and a few snacks. On his belt, he had a nine-shot revolver, and a few feet away from his chair, he had a loaded Mini-14 rifle. Smith had an outdoor video surveillance system running, and in an adjacent basement work area, he had a screen that showed pictures from his four security cameras placed around the exterior of his house. So now we know that he had plenty of time to watch Nicholas and Haley approach his home and potentially pick up the phone to contact law enforcement, but he didn't do that. He sat down in his chair in the basement and waited and listened. The following events were captured on Smith's own digital audio recorder. Remember, I told you, if it wasn't for this recording, Smith may very well have been able to justify his killing of Haley and Nicholas with his castle doctrine rights. In the beginning of the recording, he is talking to himself. Eleven minutes in, he's heard saying, quote, in your left eye. And, by the way, he did shoot Haley in the left eye. Seventeen minutes into the recording, he began rehearsing what he was going to say when he needed to report to the police what he's done, as well as to his neighbor, Bill, and to an attorney that he's going to need to hire as well, stating, quote, Bill, Stop by tomorrow. No rush, but as soon as convenient. Can you do that? Yeah. Park to the north, 100 feet or 100 yards north of the corner and walk from the west. 23 minutes into the recording, Smith said, quote, I realize I don't have an appointment, but I would like to see one of the lawyers here. 33 minutes after Smith flipped on his recorder, at 12.33 p.m., exactly what Smith had predicted would happen, happened. Nicholas Brady approached his house. He looked into the windows and he tried the doorknobs, but they were locked and deadbolted, according to Smith. Smith heard the sound of the doorknobs being rattled, and he saw a shadow in the window in the basement. He sat there and listened as Nicholas walked across Smith's porch deck and then the glass can be heard being broken. This was the sound of Nicholas breaking and entering into Smith's home through his bedroom window. Nicholas quietly approached the basement stairs. Unbeknownst to him, Smith was down below waiting 
As Nicholas descended the stairs, Smith saw Nicholas's feet first, then his knees, then his hip. Smith opened fire on Nicholas, shooting him in the chest with his rifle. Smith would later tell investigators that he did not see Nicholas's hands when he shot him. Smith shot Nicholas a second time, causing him to tumble down to the basement floor, and he landed face up. Three seconds later, at close range, Smith shot Nicholas as he was groaning. The bullet passed through Nicholas's hand and into the side of his head, and Nicholas went silent. Smith is heard saying to him, You're dead. Smith picked up Nicholas's shoes, which fell off of him when he fell down the stairs, and he placed them under his reading chair. He grabbed his tarp, and he put Nicholas onto it and dragged him over to the adjacent workroom. On the audio, some noises can then be heard, and those were the sounds of Smith reloading his rifle. Ten minutes later, after Nicholas had entered into Smith's home, Eight minutes after he was shot dead, Haley entered Smith's house. She quietly called out, Nick, but heard no response. She then began the descent down the basement stairs, again quietly saying, Nick. And as Smith had described seeing Nicholas come down the stairs, he watched Haley do the same. He opened fire when he saw her hips but before seeing her hands. She tumbled down the stairs. Smith attempted to fire at her again, but his rifle suddenly jammed. And he said, oh, sorry about that. Haley can be heard saying, oh my God, as Smith pulled out his revolver from his belt and shot her. As she was screaming, Smith shot her a third and fourth time. He then told her, you're dying. She screamed again, and he shot her a fifth time, and then he said, bitch. Smith then dragged her into the workroom and placed her on top of Nicholas's body. A few minutes later, he noticed that she wasn't dead, so he shot her a sixth and final time. That's the one he called the kill shot. For the next five hours after killing Nicholas and Haley, Smith stayed inside his home. His audio recorder continued to run, capturing him talking to himself. Some of his statements included the following. Quote, I left my house at 11.30. They were both dead by one. Unquote. Now, this means to me that he knew and accurately predicted that these kids would see his vehicle gone and would break in thinking that he wasn't home. But this also meant that they expected nobody to be home. And if they knew that they were going to be entering into what they thought was an empty house, there wouldn't necessarily be a need for them to show up armed with anything, especially a rifle or a shotgun that he suspected them to have stolen previously, right? That would be kind of suspicious if they were to walk up with weapons like that. But Smith also set them up to think that nobody was home because he moved his truck and he snuck back in the back way in case anyone was watching the front. He is heard saying, quote, Of course, I'm safe now. And of Haley, he said, Cute. I'm sure she thought she was a real pro. You're dead. 
I'm not a bleeding heart liberal. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess. Not like spilled food. Not like vomit. Not like, not even like diarrhea. The worst possible mess. And I was stuck with it. In some tiny little respect. In some tiny little respect. I was doing my civic duty. If the law enforcement system couldn't handle it, I had to do it. I had to do it. The law system couldn't handle her. And if it fell into my lap, and she dropped her problem in my lap, and she threw her problem in my face, and I had to clean it up. They weren't human. I don't see them as human. I see them as vermin. Social mistakes. Social problems. I don't see them as human. This bitch was going to go through her life destroying things for other people. Thieving, robbing, drug use. It's all fun, cool, exciting, highly profitable until somebody kills you. It's a sucker shot. People going down strange stairs naturally watch the steps. Like I give a damn who she is. It's not like a mess like spilled food. It's not like a mess like vomit. It's not even a mess like diarrhea. It's far worse. Then they take a slice after slice out of me. Five thousand. Five thousand dollar slice. Ten thousand dollar slice. And if I gather enough evidence, they might be prosecuted. And if they're prosecuted, it might go to court. And if it goes to court, they might be found guilty. And if they're found guilty, they might spend six months, two years in jail, and then they're out. And then they need money worse than ever, and they're filled with revenge. I cannot live a life like that. I cannot have that chewing on me for the rest of my life. I cannot. I refuse to live with that level of fear in my life. I refuse to live with that level of fear in my life. She's tough. She's eye candy. It's all games. It's exciting. It's highly profitable. Until somebody kills you. Until you go too far and somebody kills you. Until you take advantage of somebody who's not a sucker. Mother and father are semi-psychotic. Both are semi-psychotic. I put even odds that one or the other will come over here with a gun. Smith did not contact law enforcement on the day that he shot Nicholas and Haley. He was sitting there waiting, thinking that maybe her parents would come over with a gun to see what happened, or so he says. He was under the impression that he had killed his neighbor's daughter, Ashley. So he sat there, afraid of them coming over when she failed to return home. But he was mistaken. It wasn't Ashley. He also said that he waited until the next day to call because he didn't want to ruin anyone's Thanksgiving. The following day, on Friday, November 23rd, Smith called his neighbor, Bill, and asked him if he could find him an attorney. But it is my understanding that he was unable to contact anyone. Offices were closed for the holiday weekend. Later on, Smith asked Bill to contact the sheriff's department, telling him that he had just solved the neighborhood break-ins. Bill did call the sheriff's department, and there were a number of communications between the sheriff's dispatch and the deputies. Obviously, 
Nobody had been told that two teenagers were shot dead the day before and were laying in pools of blood on a tarp in Smith's basement. Otherwise, I'd hoped there'd be more sense of urgency. Bill requested that the same sergeant who investigated the previous burglaries be the one to respond to Smith's house, which he did a short time later, arriving with another deputy. As the deputies approached Smith's house, he exited through his front door with his hands up. He said that he needed to tell them something. He led the officers into his home, explaining to them that he had been the victim of previous burglaries and the most recent one had happened the day before on Thanksgiving. He showed them the broken glass in his bedroom, and then he told them that there was something that he needed to show them in the basement. And it was then he led them downstairs where they saw the bodies of Nicholas and Haley. He said that he shot a man coming down the steps and told them that he wanted this person dead and shot him until he was sure he was dead. Then he dragged him onto the tarp and then proceeded to wait. Then he told the deputies how he shot a woman coming down the stairs, but that time he tried to aim for the heart. Afterwards, he dragged her onto the tarp, but when he noticed that she was still gasping for air, he shot her again. He said that he suspected that she was his neighbor, Ashley. Byron Smith was arrested on the spot and taken to the sheriff's office for questioning. Smith was read his Miranda rights and he was interrogated. He went over the previous burglaries that he had suffered, which led up to the shootings. He said for a month, since the burglary where his guns were stolen, that he has felt very threatened. When he heard people coming down the stairs of the basement, he believed that they were the same burglars who stole his guns, stating, quote, I figured they're willing to use guns if they steal guns, and I decided that I've got a choice of either shooting or be shot at. He described how he killed Nicholas as he came down the stairs, stating, quote, I saw his feet, then I saw his legs, and when I saw his hips, I shot. They asked Smith where Brady's hands were, and he said he didn't see his hands. He described how Nicholas tumbled to the floor, quote, and he's looking face up at me, and I shot him in the face. I wanted him dead. He said he sat back down in his chair, his adrenaline was pumping, and he wanted to calm down. He then described how he shot Haley in a similar manner in which he shot Nicholas as she came down the stairs. He said he fired before he saw her hands, and when she fell onto the ground, her hands were open, but she would have dropped anything that she was carrying. He also pointed out that he wasn't going to ask if they had a gun or not, stating, quote, You know, people who steal guns, I don't want to give them the chance to shoot me. She could have or might not have had a gun in her hands. Smith discussed further as to why he killed Nicholas and Haley. Quote, And thinking back on it, what happened was, everybody has red buttons. Everybody has sore spots. And I've known since grade school that being ganged up on is a sore spot with me. And I just wasn't thinking. I didn't think. I wasn't thinking. I was just, they're ganging up on me, so I killed her too. He also said that Haley laughed at him when his rifle jammed, which we all know is not true at all, and this was proven to be untrue based on Smith's own audio recordings. He said, quote, It wasn't a very long laugh, but she was already hurting. There was another red button I guess most people would have, so if you're trying to shoot somebody and they laugh at you, you go again. I fired more shots than I needed to. 
Investigators asked him why he fired more shots than he needed to and he explained that his gun is a pea shooter and he felt very, very threatened and unhappy. Investigators asked, You are mad, correct? He answered, Yes. Now, dreamers, this laughing thing is the biggest crock of poop I've heard in this entire story. And when he said that if you're trying to shoot someone and they laugh at you, I mean, who the hell does that? That crap only happens in movies. Like when bad guys are trying to shoot superheroes or something and the bullets don't even make them flinch, they might smile or laugh or smirk at their nemesis for dramatic effect, but this nonsense doesn't happen in real life. Who's laughing when they're getting shot at? Especially when he says she's already hurting. It's ridiculous. And did he forget that he recorded all of this? It's pretty clear that she's scared to death and screaming. You know, even if he didn't record this whole thing, I don't think anyone would have believed the story that he's telling. He may have gotten away with it, but nobody would be buying this crap. Anyway, when he dragged her to the tarp, he described, quote, After she was on the tarp, she was still gasping. And as much as I hate someone, I don't believe they deserve pain, so I gave her a shot under the chin up into the cranium. I thought she was dead and it turned out that she wasn't. So I did a good, clean finishing shot. And she gave out the death twitch. First time I ever seen it in a human, but it works the same in beaver, deer, whatever. What a stand-up guy, right? So towards the end of his interrogation, he did acknowledge that him parking far away from his home was probably the impetus for the burglars to come because they thought that he was gone. It was the first and only time Smith would ever park his vehicle in that location. Smith was charged with second-degree murder, but as the investigation went on, his charges were increased to first-degree murder. At trial, he was charged with both to give the jury the possibility to convict him of the lesser charges if they did not feel his actions rose to the levels of first-degree murder. And Smith had a few things that were ruled to his benefit in this case. All the jury would hear is that Smith shot and killed two relatively innocent teenagers who just happened to decide to break into his house on Thanksgiving Day. The judge was not going to allow evidence that both Nicholas and Haley had broken into houses previously in the same area. As a matter of fact, Nicholas had even broken into Smith's house before as well. The jury wasn't going to hear that the two of them potentially had been abusing narcotics. Haley's autopsy indicated that she was under the influence of chemicals associated with cough syrup at the time of her death. It is not uncommon for a person's previous troubled behaviors to be inadmissible in court, so the jury would not know the entire story of what led Smith to the state of mind that he was in when he shot and killed Nicholas and Haley. But I don't think it would have mattered anyway. Smith recorded his premeditation in the hours of digital audio that he provided for investigators. And even if he purposely lured Nicholas and Haley into his home by moving his vehicle, he lost his Castle Doctrine defense the moment he kept shooting more than he needed to in order to neutralize the threat. And the jury felt the same way as they convicted him on everything after three hours of deliberations for first-degree murder and second-degree murder. Smith, 
now well into his 70s, is serving life in prison without the possibility of parole. From start to finish, even to this day, Byron David Smith feels justified in his actions. And he has his staunch defenders, as this is a case that has divided the town of Little Falls. But for me, and for many of us who have listened to the audio and followed this case, Byron David Smith is exactly where he deserves to be. And he's probably better off. At least there, for the most part, he's safe. What are your takeaways from these two stories, dreamers? Share your thoughts with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. For me, I have to say, kids and grown-ups too, just please, please, please stay out of trouble on Halloween, on every night. Respect your neighbors and their property. You just never know who you're going to run into. Might be the next Pete Solomona or the next Byron Smith. And for those of us here in the United States or anywhere where they have the right to bear arms and defend your castle, everyone tends to think that Americans are trigger-happy gun lovers. And I'm not really going to get into that right now or say anything about that one way or another because that's not what this is about. But what I can say is I do believe in all of our rights and I hope all of us listening are safe and responsible and accountable and aren't being reckless or petty when it comes to defending ourselves. Our hearts go out to the lives senselessly lost in these stories. Brandon Ketzdever, Nicholas Brady, and Haley Kiefer. Thank you for listening. Please have a fun and safe Halloween. Fred and I will be outside aggressively guarding my new Halloween sign. And until next time, Sweet dreams.